Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. My home is not on this not in this world. On Saturday 19th of May, Andy McCullough taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Andy took us through the books of Joshua, Judges and Ruth. Andy is a church planter, writer and regular speaker on numerous theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. So this morning, in the first session, we're going to do Joshua, Judges and Ruth. Uh, and then we'll have a, a coffee break, and then after that we're going to look at the systematic subject, so we're going to look at mission, which is a subject very close to my heart. So um, j- so just to start, and just to get a feel for it, if you take Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, um, where is, in those three books, do, do you have a favorite verse? Okay. Now, you might not be able to say, oh, it's chapter 3 and verse 16, but you might go, oh, it's the moment when Samson has his hair cut off. I love that verse, or whatever it is. So in those three books, do you have a favorite moment or a favorite kind of picture or a favorite verse? So just, just chat about that on your tables, and then I'm going to take a little poll to see which of these three books resonates with us the most. So just a little chat on your tables for a few moments. Right, now we're going to do a little hand vote, okay? If your favourite verse was in Joshua from those three, can you put your hand up, please? Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Was that a hand? Twelve. That was, you're ashamed that your favourite verse is in Joshua. Twelve, thirteen. Thirteen, yeah? Okay. Judges. One, two, three, four. Five, six, okay, and Ruth. Oh, they have it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. That was close. We had thirteen and then fourteen, but Ruth just about has it. And if I was going to go in there, mine was in Ruth as well. So, interesting. So these three books of the Bible, they're very different from each other, but there's a lot of similarities. And, um, some of us find some of the stuff in them really hard, so we're going to try and wrestle with some quite difficult issues in some of these books as well. Um, so we're going to start with Joshua, okay? Now, dating, dating when the conquest happened in Joshua is really difficult. So archaeologists, in a lot of the bits of the Bible, they can go to places and examine stuff and go, oh, we know that this happened at about this time, and there's lots of proof. But with Joshua, it's been really difficult. Um, so there was an archaeologist who went through all the cities like Jericho. So they looked at Jericho, and they were like, looked at all the layers of Jericho and saw that at one point, all the walls of Jericho seemed to have fallen outwards. And they were like, oh, that must have been when they marched around the walls and the walls, and they could date it really accurately. But then another archaeologist came through and said, no, no, that's a load of rubbish, that didn't actually happen. So it's, it's very difficult to actually tell the kind of historical timing of when the conquest happened. Um, but generally, people, evangelicals, will go with Eugene Merrill's dates, which is, the conquest took seven years, okay, just bear with, this is the most boring thing we're doing today. <laughs> Eugene Merrill's dates say it went from like 1406 
when they took Jericho and came into the land through to 1399 BC. That's seven years. And this is just when the, the Bronze Age is becoming the Iron Age. So people are just upgrading their swords from bronze swords to iron swords. And, and you're just hitting that kind of technology moment. So, so people say they came out of Egypt 40 years in the wilderness. And then coming into the promised land, it was at, at about that time. Okay. Now, interestingly, though, and these are the things that I find more interesting. It took, the conquest in Joshua took seven years. Okay, now seven in the Bible is a really important number. It comes around loads and loads of times. And we'll see today that we'll see a lot of these kind of symbolic numbers in the writing. Because seven years, and then it says in Joshua 11 and 23, the land had rest. So it's interesting, seven years to conquer, and then the land has rest. So there's this real kind of sabbatical theme of God bringing the people in and then having rest. You have in, obviously coming out of Egypt, and you guys have studied this already, they come in, they they send the 12 spies to look at the promised land. 10 of the spies say, no, we can't do it, it's too scary, the giants are big. And then there are two spies who say, no, we can do it, we can take it, God's going to give us the land. And those two guys are Joshua and Caleb. And so in the book of Joshua, you actually see the story of Joshua and the story of Caleb both getting their inheritance. So the other guys all die out. A whole generation dies out in the wilderness because they didn't trust God. But then you have these two spies coming in and taking the land. And the book of Joshua starts with two spies being sent into Jericho. So it's like, it's the book of the kind of faithful two spies, yeah? Key vocabulary in Joshua, you have the word land... 102 times. So the word land is obviously really important in this book. And you have the word inheritance 50 times. So these are, you know, these are big themes of the book of coming in, taking the land, and being given your inheritance. The language is very similar to Deuteronomy. You can read Deuteronomy and Joshua together. And Deuteronomy is like, when you come into the land, you should do this and this, and this is going to happen. And then Joshua is like, we came into the land, and we did this and this, and this happened. So they're actually kind of very similar books, Deuteronomy and Joshua, in their kind of feel. Okay? So that, that's your kind of technical introduction. That's the boring stuff. We've done it. For us as Christians, when we read Joshua and we kind of spiritualize it into our Christian context, we notice a few things straight away. Joshua has the same name as Jesus. Now, we don't always notice that in our English translation, but it's Yeshua. So we have a great Joshua. Okay? We've been brought out of slavery in Egypt, slavery to sin where we were oppressed by the power of sin, under the blood of the Lamb at Passover, we've been brought out, set free from slavery. Now we belong to him. We come through the, they came through the waters of the river Jericho to come into the promised land. We come through the waters of baptism. And then Jesus, our great Joshua, leads us in to take our spiritual inheritance. And just as all the tribes have different inheritances, so we as Christians, we all have different spiritual gifts. We all have different things that we are given, different places to occupy in the kingdom of God. 
And so from early Christian times, Christians have always read this. And you see this in Hebrews, where it talks about Jesus being the one who gives us rest. And so we come into our inheritance. We are given rest in the land. We have that now spiritually in Christ, but we will have it one day in the land of eternal milk and honey, where we rest in his presence forever. Amen? And so it is our story. And Christians have always read it like that. Um, If you've come across Andrew Wilson's new book, Echoes of Exodus, which is a, a book kind of surveying the story of Exodus, but all the way through the Bible, which is a brilliant read. Um, he says this, Robertson Wilson, as Joshua leads his people into a land flowing with milk and honey, complete with cities they did not build and vineyards they did not plant, we are reminded that one day freedom will come and a true and better Joshua will bring God's people through the waters Rescue prostitutes and sinners and Gentiles and provide them all with an inheritance of peace, abundance and rest. Just not yet. Okay. And when we look at Joshua, we're going to see it's kind of in two sections. The first section, chapter 1 to 12, is the book of conquests. Then the second section, 13 to 24, is the book of appointments. Okay. The first half of the book... Israel is unstoppable. God is working. You know, Jericho falls down. They, the waters pile up and they cross the River Jordan. And it's kind of miraculous and powerful and God is unstoppable. It's very kind of black and white. Victory, rah, kind of bit. The second half of the book is much more grey. There's, there's confusion. There's imperfect victories. There's tribes who are supposed to take an inheritance but they don't take it completely they fail they mess up and so you've got this kind of really powerful victorious black and white beginning bit apart from the the bit about Akan and when he sins and we'll look at that but then the second half is much more kind of incomplete and much more gray and it's funny because some of us see life like the first part and we're like Jesus is with me everything's possible and some of us see life like the second part it's actually there's a lot of gray it's quite confusing I've imperfectly taken my inheritance. I've still got a lot of mess in my life. And so this book kind of deals with both. Uh, The first half of the book, so the first 12 chapters, is Israel moving together as an army, as a people, and conquering together. So it's like they come into the land across the Jordan, they take Jericho and Ai, then they go up north and they conquer up north, then they come down south. And so they're moving together. And taking, their kind of, taking the whole country together. And then the second half of the book is all the tribes, each one taking their own inheritance. So Judah takes the hill country, and Simeon takes this bit, and Dan goes up by the coast. And so you have all the tribes taking their inheritance. And um, again, in some ways, that's a bit like, for those that are familiar with our story, that's a bit like New Frontiers. In many ways, you know, we had our kind of first generation under Terry Virgo's leadership all together. And now we've come to this kind of transition moment where you've got different apostolic spheres in different places and, you know, the advanced guys are getting on taking their inheritance in South Africa and the catalyst guys are getting on taking their inheritance over here. And so, you know, you can kind of live with it that way as well. I've always quite enjoyed it in terms of when I went to Istanbul to church plant, and we'll talk a bit more about that in the mission session later, 
a lot of my mates were also church planting in different cities. And so we often felt a little bit like the Joshua guys. It's like, I'm over here taking my inheritance. How are you doing over there? Yeah, we're doing really well over here, kind of taking our city and kind of learning from each other and a bunch of brothers all on mission, but going to different places and doing different things. And so that's how the second half of Joshua reads a little bit. Okay. So the first section, the book of conquests, chapters 1 to 12, you see them coming into the land... They cross the Jordan. You know, it's that amazing moment where the Ark of the Covenant is being carried and they step into the river in flood and the waters open and they walk through on dry land. It's an incredible picture of, you know, the Ark of the Covenant in these books of the Bible, wherever it goes, things happen. You know, you take it around Jericho and the walls fall down. You know, in Samuel, they capture the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in the Temple of Dagon and Dagon falls down. It's like wherever the Ark of the Covenant goes, things are falling down. And um, here we see it with the crossing the Jordan. They're, they're circumcised, they celebrate Passover, so they kind of get spiritually ready and then they cross and they come into the land. Uh, Eugene Merrill says, this whole sequence, circumcision, Passover and Theophany, that's when Joshua sees the captain of the Lord's army in chapter 5, emphatically declared that the Israel of conquest was the Israel of Exodus. These are the same things that happen in Exodus. Passover, crossing some water, seeing God and taking off your sandals. And so it's the same thing. So they're going, it's the same God. The God who saved his people out of Egypt will now be the same God who takes his people into Canaan. The taking of Jericho is that classic Sunday school story, isn't it? You know, we know the story very well as Christians, where they march around blowing their trumpets and then the walls fall down. It's, it's interesting because it's a, it's a bizarre strategy. So Schreiner says that this bizarre strategy confirmed that Israel could not attribute victory to its own military prowess. The victory was a gift of grace, an astounding work of God. Yeah, so it's not like Joshua was a great general and he had a great plan. No, they just obeyed God. They did what they were told and the walls fell down. So it's a story about faith and obedience and miracles. And again, they walk around the city for seven days and it's on the Sabbath when you don't do any work that they're walking around the city blowing their trumpets and God brings the victory on the day when people don't do any work because it's God's victory. And seven is God's number. You know, it's the kind of perfect, it's the sign of we rest, God does something miraculous. And so it's on the seventh day that the city of Jericho is taken. Does that make sense? And so it, it, all the way through Joshua, you're saying it's not about them being heroic or being great military geniuses or anything. It's God's miraculous grace that gives them their inheritance. So it's a grace story. And we also see, if you, we were just talking about Revelation. In Revelation, there's a section where there's seven trumpets blown. And it's actually a reference to this story here. Because here we have trumpets being blown for seven days going around the city and then the walls falling down. And it's a picture, if you like, of uh, decreation. And then, re you know, in Revelation, what's happening is the old world is being decreated. 
like rolled up like an old garment and thrown away. And then a new world is being brought out. And the trumpets are kind of announcing that. And that's exactly what's happening in Joshua. The people are coming into the land. The old uh, world, the old civilization of Jericho is being taken apart and dismantled because God is going to bring a whole new world, a whole new beginning, a whole new creation. And so we see that little picture there. And that's why it's burned with fire. So fire in the Bible is always this symbol of... It's not just judgment, but it's like getting rid of the old and then starting something new. Okay, so I grew up in Cyprus, uh, which is a great place to grow up. Um, But every year at the end of the, the farming season, all the farmers would burn their fields with fire in Cyprus. So they would do it every year. It's the end of the season. We've harvested the crops. They would set fire to all the stubble in their fields and burn it. And this was to get rid of snakes, um, but also to kind of re-fertilize the soil. So I was just at Tim's house this morning, and he's taken ash from his fire pit and put it into his rhubarb patch. I didn't know Tim was a genius gardener, but, but the idea is that the kind of the, the, the fire stuff, the ash, has fertilizer in it that's going to fertilize his rhubarb. We had a very nice crumble as well, didn't we? Um, so I reckon... I really, re- he makes a good crumble, this guy. Really recommend it. Yeah. And so fire is a picture not just of destroying the old, but also of kind of preparing for the new. And that's what's happening in Joshua, is like the old is going and the new is coming. And that's also what's happening in Revelation. Okay. Then we, now we're going to get to some people's stories. So I always find that the stories of people in the Bible the most interesting because you can relate to them more. And um, in this first section in Joshua, you, you have two well-developed characters. One is Rahab and the other is Achan. Okay, so Rahab in chapter 2 and chapter 6 and then Achan in chapter 7. And um, really these two are contrasted with each other in this section. You're supposed to compare them. Okay, Rahab is a woman. She's a prostitute. She's a Canaanite, so she's a Gentile. She's an enemy. She's full of shame. She lives in Jericho. And then Achan is from the tribe of Judah. So he's from the best tribe He's got a great pedigree, a great family line. He is supposed to be one of the kind of best guys, one of the heroes. He's an insider. Okay? But then what happens? So it starts like Achan is supposed to be up here because of where he comes from. And Rahab is supposed to be down here because of where she comes from. But what happens is, in the story, she is shown to be honorable. And he is shown to be Shameful, and so you get this kind of massive inversion of these two characters, and you get a hint because Achan's name means troubler, the troubler of Israel. That's that's his. Did his parents call him that? <laughs> you troubler. And so when you compare these two, it's it's really interesting. So on your notes, you've got this kind of comparison. So you've got. A Canaanite woman, and then you've got a Jewish man. 
Okay? And so immediately you're supposed to go, oh, the Jewish man is important and the Canaanite woman is not very important. She's a prostitute. He is from an incredible family line, the tribe of Judah, actually from one of the royal strands of the tribe of Judah. He's supposed to be a, a, like a real good guy. Okay? But then we see that Rahab shows what the Bible calls hesed. And we'll see this a lot in Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Hesed is sometimes translated as faithfulness, sometimes translated as like covenant love. But it's, it's, it's supposed to be this kind of loyal, faithful love to God. And Rahab, she, she's, it's said that she shows this. And this is like, this is God's word. God is the one who's faithful and shows perfect love. But here Rahab shows it. Whereas... Achan shows covetousness, yeah? And it's not just that he was poor and he thought, oh, when we go into AI, I can get some silver and I can get a bit of money. Actually, Achan was a wealthy guy. He was from a good family. And when it says in 7 and 24 that that not only was he killed, but his donkey and his oxen were killed. Those are collective nouns. So he had lots of donkeys and lots of oxen. And he had lots of stuff anyway, but he wanted more stuff. So his sin was covetousness. So she shows hesed, faithfulness. He shows covetousness. And then what we see is Rahab is saved from the ban. And we're going to look at this later because it's very problematic. But the ban is when it says, go into this town and put everyone to the sword. Kill everyone. Kill all the animals. Burn the whole town. Destroy. You know, it's kind of like genocidal. And it's a really difficult issue for us when we read Joshua. Um, but they're told to come into Jericho and destroy everything. And what we see, you know, in Sunday school we say we went round the walls and they fell down. That's almost true. Actually, they went round the walls and everything fell down except one house. Rahab's house. Which was in the wall of the city with the red rope hanging out of it. And actually she was saved. And her house was saved, and all the family that she brought into her house was saved. It's extraordinary. It's like a picture of Noah's Ark. Everything else is destroyed, but all those that are inside are saved. It's a picture of Jesus. Everything else is destroyed, but all those in Jesus' house are saved, yeah? Would that be the same with the scarlet cord? So, some of the really early Christian commentators said the scarlet cord is a picture of the blood of Jesus. Because it's like the blood of the Passover lamb on the, on the door. You know, she hangs the cup. So it's like a picture of the blood of Jesus. And she's saved. Some other people have said, actually, that's where the idea of a red light district comes from. It was the prostitute's house and she had the scarlet cord there. So, yeah, me too. Me too. Rahab is saved with her whole family. So on the ban, the ho- her whole people, her whole city are put to the ban, but she is saved from it. But with Achan, the opposite happens. His family are put under the ban. His whole family, everything he owns, are destroyed and killed. And so you, you get this inversion. He's supposed to be in, she's supposed to be out, but you actually get this kind of swapping here. Rahab is saved with her whole family. Achan is destroyed with his whole family. Rahab journeys from shame to honor. Achan journeys from honor to shame. Rahab moves from outside. She's an enemy of the people of God, and she moves to inside. She marries a Jewish guy, one of the princes of Judah, and ends up inside. 
And she ends up actually in the genealogy of David and in the genealogy of Jesus. It's incredible. So she goes from enemy to family, whereas Achan goes from inside to outside, from family to enemy. She is added to Judah, the tribe of Judah. She is, uh, he is removed from Judah. And so you just see this great contrast between these two characters, yeah? The other really striking thing about the first half of the book is that the taking of Jericho and Ai and Joshua's movements there are exactly the same as the movements that Abraham had made. So Abraham had come and gone to certain places and just made altars there and prayed there. And then generations later, Joshua comes to the same places with an army and sees the kingdom come. And it's almost like uh, Peter Lightheart says, Abraham's and Jacob's worship is a pre-conquest of the land. They came and prayed in those places and almost took the inheritance spiritually. And now the army come and they actually take the inheritance physically. And then the, the second half of the book, just really quickly, so the book of appointments, where the different tribes all get their inheritance. Just some key things to notice. One is that the order of the tribes has been established now. So the first tribe to get their inheritance are Judah. So all the way in the Bible, Judah has been fourth. Can you put up the slide, please, that has the, the 12 sons of Jacob? There you go. So this is the 12 sons of Jacob, and you had Reuben, then Simeon and Levi, and then Judah was fourth. And the different colors are the different mothers that they had. And then the, the whole story of the book of Genesis is asking which one is going to be the preeminent, which one is going to be the tribe that Messiah comes from, which one is going to be the kingly tribe. And when you're reading Genesis, they disqualify themselves one at a time. So first Reuben disqualifies himself by sleeping with his father's concubine. Then Simeon and Levi disqualify themselves by going up and fighting against Shechem when their dad told them not to. And then you end up with Judah. And Judah ends up being the one. So when you read the end of Genesis, you see Simeon, uh, Reuben's disqualified, Simeon's disqualified, Levi's disqualified, but Judah is going to be king. Okay? And, and now when we get to the book of Judges, we see actually Judah gets their inheritance first. And you start, start seeing Judah come to the fore. And it's great. We know that's going to be important because we know that Jesus, well, first King David, and then Jesus is going to come from the tribe of Judah. Okay, so the order is getting sorted out now. Simeon and Levi, who are both disqualified, don't actually get a proper inheritance. So Simeon's inheritance is just a little part of Judah. So Judah gets a big lump of land, and Simeon gets a little bit inside it. Levi doesn't get any land. He gets the priesthood, and he gets a few cities. Okay. And we see the cities of refuge established. So there are six cities of refuge, which is where if you have a problem, you're supposed to be able to run there and be safe. And so they're spread out through the land. And the Levites get to live in those towns. Okay, so that's the kind of overview of the story of Joshua, okay? Now we're going to take one theological issue. The, the thing that makes the book of Joshua really difficult to read is how much killing there is of people and the fact that God orders the people to put other nations under the ban. So this land, it wasn't an empty land and the people turned up and went, oh, there's a nice empty land, we can live here. There were other people living there. And so what, because God has chosen you, 
you're allowed to throw other people out and take their houses. That doesn't seem very charitable. <laughs> and all the way through history, sadly, Christians have used the book of Joshua to justify terrible things. Okay? So, in apartheid in South Africa, my wife is white South African, she grew up during apartheid. But a lot of the, the kind of apartheid language that was being preached in churches was from the book of Joshua. Well, God has given us this land as white settlers so we can turn up and get rid of the black people and we can take their land because God has, we're the anointed people. You're like, really? Um, in modern times, the Israeli dispossession of Palestinians, you know, it's been in the news again this last couple of weeks, they would use things like this to justify it. So God has given this land to us as Israel, so let's get rid of the Palestinians and we'll take the land. You think, well, what about the people that were living in those houses? So it's very difficult, okay? And it's been used to justify even genocide in some ways. This whole, you know, this whole thing of kill that other race and you come because God is with you. Really? So what are we supposed to do about that? You know, I spend a lot of time talking to Muslims. And some people say, oh, when you talk to Muslims, you should show them how much violence is in the Quran. It's like, no, no, you shouldn't, because they'll just show you the book of Joshua. And, and so what do we do with that when we read Joshua? How do we handle this? So I'm just going to show you five... Uh, Christian solutions, and then you're going to have a chance to discuss them and see which of these resonates with you, okay? Uh, number one, so the, the ban, the, the Hebrew word is the haram, and it means come into this town, kill everybody, kill all the animals, burn the whole town, and leave it destroyed, okay? The haram. And um, so... The first one is this, haram is metaphorical, not military. So we allegorize the meaning. So what it means for us as Christians is, cut off all temptation. Yeah, Burn everything in your house that might lead you to sin. Destroy your flesh. Cut off all temptation. Get rid of everything that's not of God and just leave what's pure. Okay, so sometimes we can do that. Go, go to war, but go to war against your flesh, yeah? So we kind of, we turn it into a metaphor, we allegorize it, and that's how we handle it. So maybe that's what you feel comfortable with doing with these kind of passages. Number two, uh, some scholars would say the haram was normal at the time. So it wasn't just Israel that were doing this. All the nations around were doing this at the time. So actually, it was just culturally normal. You know, when you conquer a place, you kill everybody so that there can be no uprising against you. You get rid of everybody because now you're, now you're there, okay? And so that was normal at the time. All the nations did it. So Israel weren't being particularly evil. They were just being culturally normal, okay? So some people would say that's the way you go. Don't judge scripture through your 21st century morality, in other words. Number three, some people say, actually, haram never actually happened. It was like a utopian idea. When they looked back and they wrote the book of Joshua, they said, oh, yeah, that's what we did, and we got rid of everyone. But actually, it never actually happened. And you know this because later on, 
we still see lots of Canaanites around. We still meet uh, Jebusites in the city of Jerusalem. So they weren't all killed because, you know, David later, he buys uh, the threshing floor off a Jebusite. So they obviously didn't kill all the Jebusites. Yeah, so some people say, it's like Jubilee. In the Bible, the concept of Jubilee that you saw in Deuteronomy it was actually a utopian ideal. It never really happened. We never hear a story of everyone giving everybody's land back. It's just this kind of... So maybe that's what is true. And Robert Alter says, the fact that this narrative does not correspond to what we can reconstruct of the actual history of Canaan offers one great consolation. The blood-curdling report of the massacre of entire population of Canaanite towns, men, women, children, and in some cases livestock as well, never happened. We, don't, we struggle to prove Joshua historically and archaeologically. Maybe that's a good thing, is what he's saying, yeah? Number four, Haram was only justified. This is what the Jewish rabbis would usually say. Haram was justified at that time against those seven nations that are listed, but it's now obsolete. So it was like a one-time thing that God did at one time against the nations in the land, but it's never to be done again. Okay, it's obsolete now. It was one, one time, one thing. And number five... is actually that in the book of Joshua, you do get a lot of surprise. So it's not as clear as God is with us and he hates everybody else. God is on our side. God is on our team. We're better than everybody else. It's not as black and white as that because when Joshua in chapter 5 sees the commander of the Lord's army and he says, are you for us or against us? What does the commander of the Lord's army say to him? Neither. I'm for me, I'm God, I'm not on your team. And then also what we saw about the inversion of Achan and Rahab, it's actually not as black and white as just because you're in God's people, you're definitely on the winning team. Because here we saw, no, actually that he was on God's people, but he messed up. And she wasn't on God's people and she got brought in. So it's more complex. And so there's lots of surprise in the book of unexpected things. Because actually... Election should never make you complacent or arrogant or presumptive. God isn't for you. God isn't on your team. God is for his own glory and for his own purposes. And you need to choose whether you align with him or not. Amen? Okay, so you're now going to take some time on your tables and discuss this problem of haram. It's really troubling. I find it really difficult, okay? It's a very, particularly because in my world I'm debating with Muslims a lot. This comes up a lot. And, and it's, it's one of those difficult parts of the Bible to deal with, okay? So discuss it. How does it make you feel about the book of Joshua? Which of these five solutions is most compelling to you? So take five minutes on your tables to do that. Okay, we're going to go to uh, the next book then, the book of Judges. So it's interesting, when we voted at the beginning, very few people, only five people said we like, our favourite verse here is in the book of Judges. Um, does anyone have a favourite judge from the book of Judges? Samson? Gideon? Gideon Deborah. 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 Oh, Deborah. 
Wonder Woman. Okay, so if you take Judges chapter 2, so with your Bibles now, Judges chapter 2 and verse 16 to 19. And just on your tables, just read those verses, or even on your own, just read Judges 2, 16 to 19. And what you'll see there is like the, the kind of the little cycle that the whole book of Judges is about. And maybe try and draw it. So maybe try and draw it as a spiral. You know, God raises up a judge, then they sin. You know, and, you know or draw yourself a picture or put it in order. Uh, so just take a few moments with Judges 2, 16 to 19, because that kind of sets the mood for the whole book. Okay, and so what you'll see is through the book of Judges, you just have this same cycle over and over again. There's a judge, they, they rule for a while, everything's good, then they kind of fall, everything goes bad again. There's a season without a judge, then God raises up another one. But at the same time, it's getting worse. So it's kind of getting further away. And so by the end of the book, you're in a much worse situation than you were at the beginning of the book. Um, the word for judges, so the Hebrew word sopetim, it can also mean saviors or deliverers. And actually, if you look at it, that's a lot of the time is what's happening is they are, they're saving, they're delivering the nation. So they're kind of a, he, a hero who comes through, saves the nation, rules the nation for a season and then dies out and then another one comes through. So you could call it the book of saviors. What we see is a lot of them end up reigning for 40 years, okay? And we see this number 40 so often that it must be a symbolic number. It's not a literal. They, they didn't all live for exactly 40 years and then die. That would just be mysterious. So it's different in that regard from the book of Kings. In the book of Kings, it, you have a very clear history. And you have this guy reigned for 17 years. This guy reigned for 32 years. You know, so, so the book of Kings is giving you literal numbers for their reign. The book of Judges is using the number 40 as meaning a whole generation. Okay, so at times you have uh, a judge ruling for 40 years. So for example, in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. And so he rules for 40 years, the land knows peace for 40 years. That's like, as long as anyone can remember, everything's been good. 40 years is like, as long as anyone can remember, okay, a generation. And then at other times, you have, you have 40 years without a judge. So in 13 and 1, there's 40 years when the Philistines are oppressing them, and then Samson comes. And so that means for as long as anyone can remember, it's been bad, and we've been oppressed. Okay, so 40 years, that, that's what, and often in the scripture, that's what it means. It means like a long period of time, a whole generation. One of the big themes in Judges is unlikeliness, which I, I really like. So a lot of the judges are not the kind of people that you would expect as... They're not the kind of people you'd make leaders in your church, yeah? Well, CCM's a little bit fringe, so maybe. <laughs> but this is often the case with charismatic authority. The Holy Spirit comes on someone and calls them, and they're not at all the kind of person that you would think would be qualified. So Ehud is left-handed, which in those days was like, oof. That's like way out there. Deborah was a woman. Gideon was fearful. He was a coward. <laughs> there wasn't so much response. We were like, yeah, we're a bit like that. Um, Jephthah, 
was the son of a prostitute and then rejected by his family. They were like, you're illegitimate. Uh, we don't accept you. And he's the one that God chose at that time. Samson was a playboy. And so all the way through, they're like really unlikely people, but God chooses them, which is great news for us. There are seven major judges. Okay, so in the book of Judges, there are seven major judges. You have them listed in your notes. And then if you include the minor judges, the kind of little guys, the parenthetical ones, then there's 12 judges. Okay, so some of the Jews would say, actually, it starts with Othniel in summer, and it works all the way through to Samson 12 months later. And so you've got a month to kind of understand the personality of each judge. Oh, this judge is like November. You know, so you can read it like that if you want. It starts with the first judge is Othniel, who is a good guy, and he's from the tribe of Judah, which is the good tribe. And then the last judge is Samson, who's a naughty boy, and he's from the tribe of Dan, which is the furthest away geographically. And so even there you can see it's kind of, it's a descent, it's a spiral from Judah and the good guy down to Dan and the naughty guy. And so it's like, it just gets worse and worse and worse towards the end of the book, a degenerative cycle. And then whenever you have seven in the Bible, one of the most interesting ones is the middle number because the way kind of Jewish thinking would work is like you start here, you go one, two, three, then there's number four in the middle, and then five, six, seven. And so the middle one is Gideon. And many people say Gideon is the like, typical judge story. His story has all the characteristics of a judge story. He's the, like, he's the centerpiece, and he's the typical one. In the first six books of the Bible, we hear a lot about priests. We're always hearing about the sons of Aaron and the Levites and the priests. But in Judges, the question you're asking all the way through is, where are the priests? It's not talking about They don't seem to be in play at all. Until right at the end of Judges, in the last couple of chapters, you meet some priests, and they're a mess. They're corrupt. They're bad guys. And so, again, it's a sign of the decline of a nation when the priests are not to be seen, or they're really corrupt. Um, I'm going to read this quote from Yale Ziegler, who's a Jewish uh, scholar. And she says... Notably, there appears to be a geographical component to the decline in Judges. The tribal area of each successive leader is increasingly further removed from the area of Judah. So the first judge is in Judah, but the leader following Judean Othniel is Ehud from Benjamin, which is north of Judah, then Deborah in Ephraim, which is north of Benjamin, then Gideon from Manasseh, which is north of Ephraim, then Jephthah from Gilead on the eastern side of the Jordan, and then finally Samson from Dan, which is right in the north of the country. This suggests there's a correlation between the growing physical distance of the leader from the tribe that is meant to lead, Judah, and the progressive deterioration of the leaders. Okay, so basically each judge is from further away from Judah because they're drifting further away from the fact that Judah was chosen to lead and they're ignoring that. In Judges, right at the beginning and right at the end, we see that Judah is supposed to be leading. Judah is supposed to be taking responsibility. So in 1, 1 and 2, God says Judah shall arise. And in 2018, God says Judah shall arise. And so some would say, actually, the mess that they're in is because they've ignored God. Judah hasn't led, the nation hasn't let Judah lead. 
And that's why they're in a mess. If only you'd listened to me in the beginning, you wouldn't be in this mess. And so in this sense, the book of Judges is all pointing towards the book of Samuel when David will come from the tribe of Judah and he will be the king that unites the nation. And we look ahead to Jesus who comes from the tribe of Judah, the Lion of Judah, who unites all the nations of the world. And so if only you would listen to me and accept my ruler, you wouldn't be in this mess. We could say that to the world today, couldn't we? Uh, Judges is a very, very brutal book. So there's some very visceral, graphic pictures of killing in Judges. It's one of the most graphic books. My kids in Sunday school, they love this book. They, the other Sunday, they, I don't know why, the other Sunday in kids' work in our church, they did the story of Ehud, okay, which is he kills a really fat king, and his hand goes into the fat of the king's belly, and then he leaves the dagger there embedded in the king's belly, and he pulls his hand out, and the king dies. And he's just like, why do you have that detail in the Bible? What does that tell me about Jesus? Uh, you have... Uh, Samson's wife gets burned alive in her house. You have, right at the end, the the story of the concubine from Benjamin who's gang-raped and then left for dead in the morning. You have the story of Jael and the tent peg, and she kills a guy by hammering a tent peg through his temple. No ideas for Catalyst Festival. (laughs) But you just... and. And in the book of Judges, every Israelite who is killed is killed by another Israelite. So it's not even... Every Israelite who's killed in the book of Judges is killed by another Israelite. And so you get this kind of dog-eats-dog world happening. Why? Because they're not accepting that there should be a rule from God. There's a, vengeance is a really big theme in Judges. So it starts with, in chapter 1, a king saying, as I have done, so it's been done to me. You reap what you sow. And actually, all the way through Judges, you see this. You see someone kills someone, and someone takes revenge on them, and then someone takes, and it just escalates. And we'll see that in Samson's story in a minute. Also in Judges, we see increasingly fragmentation or individualization. So it starts with Othniel gathering all the sons of Israel. He leads and everybody follows him. Then you get some judges that lead and just their tribe or just their family follow them. And then right at the end you have Samson who's all on his own. <laughs> he leads and nobody follows him. Okay, and so increasingly the nation, you get this fragmentation. It's falling apart. We used to be a nation, then we were tribes and now we're just individuals. And again, for those with eyes to see, you could track that in our nation. Maybe. Uh, In Judges, women have a really significant role and they are used to shame the men. So all the time it's like this male warrior culture, but then you keep getting women just being used to go put the men in their place. They're rubbish. Okay? It's a real feminist book in many ways. So you have Deborah and Barak. Barak's supposed to go and lead, and he says, I'm scared, Deborah, I'll only go if you go with me. And then you have the woman, Jael, who, she's the hero, she kills Sisera, she gives him milk so he falls asleep, and then she nails his head to the ground, and she's the hero, sets them free. You have Delilah, who brings down Samson. 
Um, you have the woman of Thebes who kills Abimelech. So in chapter 9, 53, what happens is they come close to the wall and she's on the city wall and she throws a millstone and crushes him. And just as he's dying, he says to his mate, please stab me and kill me so it won't be said that I was killed by a woman. Uh, at the birth of Samson, the angel comes to tell Samson's parents that, that they're going to be pregnant. The angel won't talk to Samson's dad. He just talks to Samson's mum. Samson's dad's like this dim guy. And he's just like, I'm not talking to you. I'm going to talk to the mother. And she's getting pregnant. So all the way through, you have women being used actually to shame men in the book of Judges. What we're going to do is we're going to now just focus on one judge, just an example of a kind of a, a how to read one of these stories. And we're going to go to Samson because he's my favorite. Um, and so just some ideas really on if you're, if you're reading the story of one of these judges, how do you do that? Samson is given the longest story of any of the judges. He's the last one. Uh, Robert Alter here, he says, Only Samson is a figure announced by prenatal prophecy. Uh, with the full panoply of annunciation type scenes, so the angel comes to a barren woman and says, you're going to be pregnant, you're going to have this son. Only in the case of Samson is the advent of the Spirit of the Lord indicated, not by the, ver- not by the Spirit came upon him, like it does with all the other judges. The Spirit came upon Gideon, the Spirit came upon. With Samson, it says, the Spirit dro- drove Samson. It's much more kind of aggressive and powerful picture. Um, Unlike the other judges, Samson acts entirely alone, and his motive for devastating the Philistines is personal vengeance, not trying to save the nation. And most strikingly, only Samson, among all the judges, exercises supernatural power. Okay, so Samson is kind of unique, and we're just going to look at him a little bit. Um, In the story of Samson, I don't know if you've ever noticed, the number three is really important. So Samson, everything happens in threes for Samson. He has three girlfriends, um, which is probably why he was in trouble all the time. But all three of these girlfriends get him into trouble. He falls in love with someone who ends up betraying him or leading to his downfall. Uh, What keeps happening is the spirit comes upon him. Normally in Judges, when the spirit comes upon someone, they rise up to fight. With Samson, the spirit comes upon him and then he goes... Oh, a beautiful woman. And he gets distracted. And, and the problem is his eyes. It, it keeps saying he, he put his eye on the woman. The woman was pleasing to his eyes. And so he keeps being led astray by his eyes, which is why at the end of the story, they gouge his eyes out. Because it's like this was his big weakness. And so at the end, he, you know, Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. That's what happens to Samson. Um, But the number three is in his story, and it keeps escalating. So he goes to the wedding, and he does this riddle, and he says to the 30 men, if we get this riddle right, then, you know, I'll give you the 30 suits of armor. So there's 30 guys there, yeah? Then what happens is they threaten the wife, and she tells the secret, and so he has to go and kill 30 people to get 30 suits of clothing to give to these 30 men. So he kills 30 people. Then, as revenge, they get his wife and they burn her and her family alive. As revenge for that, Samson catches foxes, ties their tails, and sets them on fire and puts them into the harvest field. How many foxes? Anybody know? 
300. So you've gone from 30 to 300. Okay, so what you're getting is this escalation of you punch me, I punch you, but it's escalating. So from killing 30, now it's 300 foxes. And then they send some, uh, some men from Judah come to arrest him. How many men from Judah come to arrest him? 3,000. So you've gone 30, 300, 3,000. And then it says he kills 1,000 men with the jawbone of a donkey. So he gets the jawbone of a donkey. The Spirit of God comes upon him. He kills 1,000 men. And then he says, ha ha, I've made donkeys of all of you. And then they catch him and they put out his eyes. And they put him uh, to, on, the, on the grinding wheel in the mill to grind the corn, which is what a donkey would normally do. So where he said, ha ha, I've made donkeys of you, now they've made a donkey of him. And so he's blinded and he's pushing this grinding wheel around in circles, which in many ways is a picture of Israel all the way through the book of Judges. They're blind and they're just going around in circles. And in many ways, it's a picture of all of us in Adam. Blind, going around in circles, like donkeys, with nothing. And then finally, they bring him into the temple of Dagon to laugh at him and make fun of him. And he's there blind, and he says to the kids, let me put my hands on the pillars. And he prays his last prayer, and he pushes, and the whole temple comes down. And how many people were in the temple when it fell down and crushed them all? 3,000. So you've gone 30, 300, 1,000, 3,000. And so again, you've got the, the use of symbolic numbers here to illustrate that there's an escalation of revenge and violence that has no end. And it's exponential. And that's why they bring the law, an eye, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It was actually radical at the time. Just one eye. For, for one eye, not 30 eyes. One eye for one eye, please. It was supposed to like tone down vengeance. And then Jesus came even more radically and said, if someone slaps you, don't slap him back. Give him that other cheek. And so you get this kind of escalating of vengeance. But also here you see one man full of the Holy Spirit and the whole world is against him. His brothers are against him. The nation is against him. The enemies are against him. And you see, at the same time, you see a growth in Samson's power all the way through the story. So he starts with killing a lion. Then it's 300 foxes. Then it's with a jawbone of a donkey killing a thousand men. Then he lifts up the gate of a whole city and carries it away. And at the end, he knocks down a whole temple. So you see, actually, darkness is growing against him, but his power and anointing is growing as well. So Samson represents Israel in many ways. They had a supernatural origin. They were set apart from among the nations with a distinctive vocation. They broke their vows and were enamored of foreign idols until finally they lost their identity and spiritual power and became the blind slaves of oppression. Yeah, so Samson is Israel, gifted but weak, anointed but still full of mistakes. Just like us. But also, in a mystery, in the way the Bible works, Samson shows us pictures of Jesus. 
So we look at Samson and we see some pictures of Christ there, even in this fallen guy. And so this word for driven by the Spirit, it, all the other judges, it's the Spirit came upon him. But Samson, was, it was almost like he had no choice. He's compelled by the Spirit. That's actually the same word that's used in Luke of Jesus. The Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days. And it's the same kind of word. So it's, it's this kind of being driven, compelled, moved by the Spirit of God. And we see there a similarity with Christ. The, the story of the, the carcass and the honey. So he's going to a wedding and he finds some honey. Now to find honey on your way to a wedding is really good luck. It's like a sign that the wedding is going to be fruitful and everyone's just got distracted by royal wedding. I know, no, we're here. And it's a sign that it's going to be like a fruitful marriage. Honey is like a sign of good fortune, okay? But unfortunately, the honey is in the carcass of a lion. Now Samson is a Nazarite, so he can't touch a dead, unclean animal. It will defile him. So how do you get the honey... The good thing out of the bad thing. Can something good come out of something bad? Samson can't touch the carcass of a lion because it will defile him and break his Nazarite vow. He's got this dilemma. And actually, when Jews look at the cross of Jesus Christ, they see the same dilemma. That someone hung on a tree, the carcass of a dead prophet, it's, it's cursed. To be hung on a cross is shameful, it's cursed, it's bad. It's a sign of like defilement. And yet we say out of even the defilement of the cross and the curse of Jesus' death comes the sweetness of honey for us. And Jesus is the lion of Judah. And out of his carcass and death comes the goodness of salvation for us. With Samson, we see one man against all the powers of, you know, it's just me against the world, baby. But the, the one man against all the powers of darkness, that's what we see with Jesus in his generation. Samson has enemies without and within. He's betrayed by friends. That's true of Jesus. Samson has love that leads him to destruction. So he falls in love with a woman and she ends up being unfaithful. She's a prostitute. She betrays him. And because of that, he dies. That's true of Jesus. He falls in love with a woman, which is us, the church. And we're unfaithful, we're the harlot. And yet his love for us ends up leading him to destruction and death. And so even in someone as complex as Samson, you see something amazing about the love of God. And there's a quote in your notes from Olson about that. And finally, Samson's final act, his death, he's got, he bows his head... He stretches out his arms onto the pillars. He, utter, he dies with a prayer on his lips. He pushes and the whole edifice, the whole pagan temple comes down. And in his death, he kills more than he did in his life. He achieves more with his death than he did with his life. And after that, his family come, get his body out of the rubble and honor him with a great burial. So he has a post-death honoring and in all of that we see something about the way that Jesus died as well so that's a little insight into Samson and then the final section from the book of Judges because uh, it doesn't quite end with Samson you then have these really weird chapters at the end 19, 20 and 21 which are really dark and difficult chapters 
And um, really the purpose of these chapters is to point us towards Bethlehem and David coming. So it's to point us towards the fact that in the tribe of Judah, there's a little town called Bethlehem. And from that little town and that family will come King David. And so all of these chapters is geared to point towards that. Uh, A woman leaves, in chapter 19, a woman leaves the beautiful town of Bethlehem. And as she's traveling, they need to stay somewhere for the night. So they see Gibeah, which is a town in the territory of Benjamin. And she says, oh, let's stay there for the night. I'm sure they'll show us hospitality. And when they come, the people say, no, no, we don't want you. We don't want you. No hospitality. So they end up staying in one house. And then the people from the town come. They gang rape her all night. And then she dies. It's a horrible story. As a sign of then, her husband then cuts her body into 12 pieces and sends them to the 12 tribes to say, let's get vengeance, because the book of Judges is all about vengeance. All the tribes come up to fight against Benjamin, to take revenge for this horrible thing. So in a strange way, it unites the nation, although against Benjamin. The tribe that is chosen to lead the attack on Benjamin is Judah. So finally, you see Judah taking leadership, although in this terrible way and in this terrible circumstance. So this town, Gibeah, in the tribe of Benjamin, will always be remembered as a shameful, terrible place that did a terrible thing. And later, when the people say, oh, we want a king, and you get this man, Saul, King Saul, he's from Gibeah, in the, town, in the tribe of Benjamin. And so when you see Saul, you're supposed to go, no, not from there. That's a terrible place to come from. You're supposed to be from Bethlehem in Judah. That's where we need a king from. But because Saul is from a rich family and he's tall and handsome and charismatic, everyone says, ah, oh, we want him. And they just forget all the lessons of history. Sadly, what happens is they don't just take revenge on the town of Gibeah. They actually take revenge on the whole tribe of Benjamin. So the 11 tribes fight against the one, and they nearly wipe them out. And there's only 600 men left from the whole tribe. They kill them all. Not just the bad guys, they also kill the good guys in Benjamin. They kill the whole tribe. And then right at the end, in the last chapter, we see the nation suddenly going, Oh my word, what have we done? This is one of our brothers. This is one of our people. And so finally, they realize that vengeance is not the way. And so they say, okay, we need to get some, some girls for these 600 guys so they can get married and rebuild their tribe. But how are we going to do that? Because we all swore we're not going to give our daughters to them because they're from Benjamin. So they go to another country and they steal some women from there. It's an unbelievable story. And um, in that way, they go to one place and they get 400 women and they give them, but there's 600 guys, so they still need a a few more women. So then they go to another place, they steal a few more women, and in that way, they rebuild the tribe of Benjamin. And King Saul came from this mix. And so when he becomes king, you're supposed to go, what on earth are you doing? And that's where it finishes. And it leaves you poised for going, come on, we really need a king from Benjamin, who's gonna, from Judah, who's going to unite the nation and get us all on back, back on track again, because this is a mess. 
Great, so what we're going to do, we're going to look at the book of Ruth, uh, which is a tiny little book, and then we're going to move on to look at the subject of mission, okay? Um, someone asked a question in the break, why was it that Judah was chosen to, to be the tribe that the king would come from? And this is important for the book of Ruth, you know, what was it about Judah? Because actually, if you read Genesis and you go in order, Reuben messed up, Simeon and Levi messed up, actually Judah messes up as well, the whole story with Tamar, and he doesn't take responsibility for her, and he's key in selling Joseph into slavery, so Judah messed up as well, he wasn't perfect, why does he get chosen to be the tribe that the king's going to come from? Well actually, if you're reading Genesis, the, the turning point is where Joseph is in Egypt as the prime minister, and all the brothers come to see him and they fall on their faces. And remember, he, he kind of plays with them for a bit and doesn't tell them who he is. And then he takes Benjamin and says, I'm going to put Benjamin in prison. And Judah steps forward and says, no, take me instead. You know, don't take Benjamin, take me instead. And he, he, he kind of, he sacrifices himself for his brothers and that's the true mark of leadership. It's the true mark of being a king. He takes responsibility. He, he offers his own life in place of his brother's lives. And, and so, really, in the narrative of Genesis, that's then the turning point. Because then in Genesis 49, when Jacob is prophesying over his sons, Reuben, now you're rubbish. Simeon, Levi, now you're rubbish. Judah, you're going to be the lion. You're going to be the king. From you, kings will... You know. And so that's actually the moment that it turns. And... It's a great picture, actually, of Jesus again, because Jesus comes. We're thrown in prison, like Benjamin, like the other brothers, and Jesus steps in and says, no, take me instead. It's the self-sacrifice, it's the atonement. And so that's the, that's the story. And if you want to know what Christian leadership is about, that's what it's about, really. Take me instead. I'll take the pain so these guys can be okay. Um, and so that's, that's Judah's kind of turning point. And then the whole story is we're tracking with... The Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And all the way through Judges, you're kind of waiting for it. And you have all these different guys that come and save the people for a while and go away. But you're waiting for a king to come from the tribe of Judah that will unite the nation. And so you come to the book of Ruth. And that's really where you see this happening. If, if we just read Matthew... One to what chapter one verses four to six. This is the genealogy of Jesus. So this is where Jesus came from. And what we see here is this Matthew chapter one and verse four. So it's listing who Jesus' ancestors were, where he comes from, and it says, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Okay, so Rahab, who we saw who was rescued, who was a Canaanite, a prostitute, and she's brought into Israel, she marries this guy, Salmon, who's one of the princes of the tribe of Judah. So her is a classic kind of marry a prince story, you know, but she comes from nowhere, she's a mess, and then she's brought in and she marries Salmon, and now she's part of the ancestry of David. And they have a kid called Boaz, and Boaz does something very similar to his dad. He marries an outsider, Ruth. And what we're going to see is that cost him a lot. That was a costly thing for him to do. 
He, to marry an outsider, to take all the shame of that. And, marry, and so he marries Ruth, and then from them is going to come Obed, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And they end up in the story of the Messiah. It's amazing. So you've got the, the family tree up there, so you can see it. And there's some references that tell us that Nashon was the most important man in the tribe of Judah. He was like the leader of the tribe of Judah. You see that there. And that actually his son Salmon is called the father of Bethlehem. He's like the founder of the the town of Bethlehem, the community there. And so these are like nobility. They're really... So later when we meet Boaz, it says he's a man of honor, a man of valor. And also he's very wealthy. He owns lots of land. He's got people working for him. So Boaz is is like a prince of that town. Okay? He's a very high-born character. And so in the story, Ruth comes in as an outsider, as someone from the terrible people of Moab. And so for Boaz to marry Ruth is really costly for him. Because highborn don't marry lowborn. And um, it's changed now. So the wedding today is actually, you know, a prince marrying an American. Yeah, a divorced American. But you see, back in 1936, we had a similar situation where the king, so King Edward VIII, who's our current queen's uncle, King Edward VIII, fell in love with a woman. But the problem with this woman was, number one, she was divorced. Number two, not only was she divorced, she was remarried and still married. Number three, she was a commoner, so not from a noble family. And number four, she was American. And so the king loved her, and they said to him, well, you've got to choose. We will not let you marry this woman. So you, either you marry her and renounce your kingship, or you can stay king, but you can't have her. You've got to choose the lady or the crown, yeah? It's a famous story, the great abdication. So he chooses to marry this woman and go and live in France with her. And he renounces his throne and he gives it to his brother. And history is, the jury is still out on whether that was terribly romantic or whether it was an abdication of duty. And she somehow seduced him. She was, Winston Churchill wrote to him and said, she ain't nothing but a gold digger. You know, and so was she just... Was she just, yeah, exactly. Was she just after his, his money and reputation and crown and she seduced him? Was she a bad woman? And so history is still out on that. But it just shows that highborn, you know, in, in that kind of traditional society, highborn can't marry lowborn and there's a great cost to it. And the story of Boaz is very similar. So Ruth, and we don't often see this with our Western eyes because we see the world quite egalitarian. But Ruth is from Moab which in so many ways is shameful and terrible. The Moabites, had, um, they were their like ancient enemies of the Israelites. When the Israelites were coming into the land, the Moabites sent all their women to seduce the Israelites because they were tired and coming out of the desert and all these beautiful women appear and they get seduced off. The Moabites worship evil gods called Chemosh uh, with lewd acts and child sacrifice. And so for the Israelites, the Moabites are like terrible, terrible people. And they're descended from Lot. So Abraham and Lot were together, 
And then Lot left Abraham. He abandoned him. He went away. He sleeps with his own daughter. And the child they produce is called Moab. So from an Israelite point of view, these are like the people your mother warned you never to go near. Terrible, evil people. And in the time of the judges, Moab was oppressing the people of Israel. So they're also the evil oppressors. So from every point of view, they're like the enemy. Okay? And Ruth is from there. Not only that, but Ruth is also... She's used goods. She's a widow. She's been married. You know, that's not worked out. He's died. So now she's like, she's second hand. So from every point of view, she is an undesirable wife. She's a refugee. She comes up to Bethlehem because there's a famine and that she needs food. So from every point of view, she's an outsider. And nobody shows her any respect when she comes into the village. And Boaz asks the guy that works for him, who's that woman working in the field? And he's like, ah, she's a Moabite. You know, just don't even go there. And so when Ruth, uh, Ruth spends the harvest season working in Boaz's field and is kind of, and he says, stay in my field and no one will touch you. Implication being, it's dangerous for you outside. People will beat you up. Yeah, stay in my field. No one will touch you. You'll be safe. You eat here, I'll look after you. But the problem is that harvest time ends. And at the end of harvest time, everybody goes back to their homes, but she doesn't have a home to go back to. And so she approaches Boaz in the night, you know, that famous scene, puts on her perfume, sneaks up in the night, and, and, and she makes this request, spread your wings over me, which means show me compassion, protect me with, you know, give, give me some security, spread your wings over me. Actually, it's a picture of God who spreads his wings over people. The father of the fatherless, the one who looks out for the refugee and the orphan and the outsider and gives them compassion. And so she says, spread your wings over me to Boaz. And he's got a very difficult decision to make. Because if he says yes, then probably he will lose respect, esteem, the honor that he has, his good name. Because Boaz married her, you know. But he chooses actually to marry her you know that's why when in chapter 4 when it says there's another there's another redeemer the other redeemer says no I don't want to no I don't want to I'm not prepared to pay that price and so there's a costly atonement that Boaz makes here and so we're just going to look quickly at uh, six themes from the book of Ruth and the first one is the house of bread bread so Bethlehem is Bethlehem which means the house of bread and the whole thing is there's a famine, the world is hungry, and they hear that there's bread in the house of bread, so Ruth comes up there. And it's, you know, it's a picture of this place that is feeding a hungry world. And what's amazing about that is that when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, he says, I am the bread of life. And so the bread from heaven is born in the house of bread to feed a hungry world. And the whole point of Bethlehem is... There is food for the nations. Also, in rabbinic tradition, bread is a sign of kingship because a good king provides food for his people and nobody goes hungry. So bread is a symbol of kingship. So the house of bread is like the house of the generous king of abundance who feeds the hungry. And that's who Jesus is. And that's what the church is. Number two... The house of Gentile inclusion. So Naomi 
represents Israel at the time, kind of a widow, full of shame, in exile, abandoned, far away. And the story in some ways is Naomi's story of coming to acceptance and peace and rest and fullness. But it only happens through a Gentile Ruth. Okay, so a Gentile gets included in the family of God, and that means that Naomi, representing Israel, gets restored. And in many ways, that's what we see in Romans 9 and 11, where it says, that was a jump for you, wasn't it? What? (laughs) Where it says, actually, the, the people of Israel have rejected Christ, but when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then there'll be a time at the end of times when the people of Israel recognize and come back and are included again. And so the story of Naomi. So we are like the Ruth. Yeah, we get brought in from outside into the family of God as part of his great purposes. Number three, the house of reconciliation of estranged cousins. So Abraham and Lot were cousins. They were separated. These two nations, Israel and Moab, hated each other. And there was this enmity all the way through. And then here you have a Moabite coming back and being reconciled again with with her Israelite brethren. And it's a picture of nations that have been separated. You know, so I grew up in Cyprus. Uh, When we were kids, all of our games were, let's kill the Turks, because Cypriots hate Turks, because Turkey invaded Cyprus, and there were many bad things that happened. And and so when I said, actually, God's called me to go and live in Turkey to preach the gospel to Turkey, all my Cypriot friends were like, delete me on Facebook, abandoned us, you traitor. You know, but one of the beautiful things is, recently I was at a, a thing, I took one of our Turkish believers and introduced him to a Cypriot believer. And this Cypriot guy has never met a Turk before. So they hate them, but never met one. And he, he touches him, goes, are you, are you real? <laughs> are you really a Turk? Are you really a Christian? And then he embraces him. He says, I've been told my whole life that we hate, that they're like, they're like cousins, Turkey and Cyprus, they're very close to each other, but they hate each other. But in Christ, you get cousins being brought together and you get this, it's extraordinary, it's a miracle of grace. Actually, what I'm finding is everybody hates Turks. So now, wherever I go, I'm taking Turkish people with me to introduce, I was in Bulgaria recently, you know, introduced them to some Turks, Bulgarians hate Turks. So, but this reconciliation thing, it's massive, and we see it here in Ruth. In Bethlehem, the house of Jesus, estranged nations can come together again and be reconciled. Number four, it's the house of redemption. So words having to do with redemption, this Hebrew word goel, the kinsman redeemer, the redeemer, happen uh, 23 times in the book of Ruth. And Boaz turns out to be the great goel. MacArthur says this, this thing, the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, was a relative who comes to the rescue. So he's the official guardian of the family's honor. And, and what happens here is he, at great cost to himself, comes to Ruth's rescue and embraces her into the family. There's also this picture of spread your wings over me. And she comes... She comes into Boaz's family and under his protection. Yeah, it's a little bit of a mafia picture. It's like, if they touch you, they touch me. You know, like, you come into my field, into my family, I will look after you, I will protect you, nobody will touch you, because my name, the name of Boaz protects you. Uh, 
Yeah? She belongs to Boaz, fine, no one's going to touch her. Now, this, this picture is actually a really significant picture for us understanding what it means for us to come into the name of Christ and have his name spread over us. So can you just ping up a slide that has the arrows on it? Yeah, there you go. So in this story, okay, Boaz is the patron. He's the one with the power and the big name to protect her. He's like the, the godfather, okay? And Ruth is the client. She's the one who comes in and comes under his protection. Okay? And in the ancient world, this is how it worked. Nobody existed on their own. Everyone had to belong to one of these names. Everyone had to have some kind of patron. Okay? It's a big part of New Testament language. But the interesting thing is this. What a patron does for his client, the Greek word for that is charis which is what we translate as grace. So basically, I will protect you, you can have my name, my honour, you belong in my, you know, you stay in my field and I'll look after you, is what Boaz says to Ruth. I'll be your patron and I'm showing you charis. What the client does in return, so what Ruth has to do is she has to stay in his field. She has to be faithful to him. Don't go to somebody else's field. Don't try and find another guy. You stay here. You be loyal to me. Yeah, you show me respect and allegiance and loyalty and faithfulness. And so it's kind of reciprocal. I'll show you charis. You show me all these things which are called pistis. Okay? Bear with me. When Paul starts talking about Christianity... And he starts talking about grace and faith. These are the words that he uses. So he says, we have all been shown charis, grace, in Jesus Christ. So the picture he's using is actually Jesus is like Boaz. He's like our patron. And he gives us protection, hope, security, love, care, yeah, we're under him. He spreads his wings over us. He shelters us. He gives us those things. Those are called charis, grace. Paul says, in return, what we show to him is pistis. Now, often we translate pistis in the, in the New Testament, faith. We show him faith. That's true. So we are saved by grace through faith, yeah? We see that over and over again in Paul. Now, that's true, but pistis doesn't just mean faith. It means all of these things. It actually means allegiance, loyalty, trust, dependence. Don't go to somebody else's field. So we're saved by grace through faith means Jesus spreads his wings over us and promises all of these things. And in return, we say to Jesus, okay then, I'm going to show you pistis. I'm going to show you allegiance, loyalty, trust. I won't go to any other fields, however attractive they are. I'm going to stay here. Does that make sense? I read a book recently. It's quite controversial, but it's called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And so the guy takes this word pistis in the New Testament and just goes through and translates it as allegiance every time. And it's quite controversial because... We're so used to saying, no, you're saved by faith. And we think faith just means, oh, I've realized that Jesus is the Son of God and he died for me. Whereas actually faith is a much bigger thing. Faith is to do with the orientation of my life and my choice to stay in his field and show him my loyalty and my dependence. 
Fifthly, uh, we see Bethlehem here as the house of shame absorption. So what happens is, Ruth is full of shame, and Boaz is full of honour, and his choice to take her under his wings actually makes him look like a weak guy. So he is decreased by association with her, and she is increased by association with him. He loses, he loses reputation, good standing, he loses, she gains. So there's actually here a, a substitution moment, and it's, it's what we see at the cross, where we are full of shame, and God, who is full of honour on the cross, takes the whole shameful thing of the curse and hanging there naked, and in return, we are lifted up and we're given a new name. And so he's absorbing our shame for us. There's this picture in John where Jesus, it says, the guys that were crucifying took, him, took his clothes from him and they're gambling for the clothes. And in the Bible, nakedness is shame and clothedness is honour. And so we've been naked ever since Eden and full of our shame and constantly trying to find fig leaves to cover ourselves. So mankind is naked, God is fully clothed, he's full of honour. But on the cross, mankind takes Jesus' clothes, he is left naked and we are clothed. And so you see this, the very ones who crucify him take his, strip his honour from him, he's humiliated. And that's, that's what we gain at the cross. And so there's, a, there's an honour substitution that happens. And we see that in the story of Boaz. And then finally, it's the house of the seed. So all the way since Genesis, we've been tracking the promise, one day the seed will come, yeah? One day the promised Messiah will come. And we've been tracking where's it going to come from. We know he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. We know he's going to come from Bethlehem. And then here we see at the end, they marry, they have Obed. Obed has Jesse. Jesse has David. And David is told a seed will come from your house. And we know that that's Jesus Christ. So Shriner says, surprisingly, Ruth forms a link in the chain that would bring David into the world, solving the problem of judges where Israel lacked a king. And a future son of David would bring many more Ruths, many more Gentiles into the fold of God's people and fulfill the promise of universal blessing made to Abraham. Is there anyone here today who's of Jewish family, Jewish origin? No. Okay. So with the exception of you then, the rest of us are Gentiles, so we're all Ruths. So Ruth's story is our story, and we're brought into the, the chosen people of God. Okay, so five minutes to discuss on your tables. Which one of these six fit themes do you find most moving, most compelling, and why? So just a moment to reflect. Wow.